This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2015. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. To 2 Kings chapter 8 this morning. 2 Kings chapter 8. Let you find that first. Second Kings chapter eight. Now we're continuing. Obviously, we're almost at an end in this series of messages regarding Elisha the prophet, following the footsteps of a prophet. And uh, as we come into chapter eight, uh, let me remind you again that the ministry in the life of Elisha as written, recorded in Scripture, is not necessarily in chronological order. For instance, the first six verses of chapter 8 chronologically would belong in chapter 4, because in chapter 4 that's where Elisha is dealing with the Shunammite woman. And uh, when you come into chapter 8, then he's dealing with her again. It's the third uh, time he's dealt with her. Uh, and we, whenever we were sharing that message about the Shunammite woman and how that uh, she had got that son miraculously and he died and how Elisha raised him back to life again, uh, then we mentioned about the third time he met her here in chapter 8, and we just briefly mentioned it. So I want this morning to begin here again and go over this a little bit more and then move on in the chapter to another incident. And so you remember the Shunammite, how that she and her husband uh, were a prosperous couple, and they were very, very generous. And how that they were seeing this itinerant uh, preacher, this prophet going from city to city, recognizing he was a man of God, they decided they would build a little extra room onto their house, just as a little private place where he could come and he could rest and he could pray and he could seek the Lord and he could spend some time just alone. And so they did that. And he was very uh, uh, happy for that and, and wanted to bless them in some way. And so he called the lady and he says, look, can I talk to the king of Israel for you or for the commander of the army? Is there anything that I can do? And she says, no, I dwell among my own people. She was a notable woman. She was well-to-do. And what she was saying, look, I'm happy as I am. I don't need anything. Thank you very much. So you don't need to talk to the king or the commander of the army. Everything's fine with me. She wasn't really wanting any reward or anything. Uh, but Elisha wasn't happy with that because he really wanted to bless her. So he said to his servant Gehazi, is there anything can be done for this lady? And he says, well, actually, her husband is quite old and she has no son. So he says, call her again. So she came into the room and he says, about this time next year, you're going to have a son. And sure enough, even though she could hardly believe what she was hearing, sure enough, she had a son the following year. And then it skips along to he's about four or five years old. He's out in the field watching the, his father, who's a farmer, on all the reapers. And he took, we believe, was sunstroke, and he was crying about his sore head. So a servant took him back to his mother, and he died in his mother's arms. And then how she ran uh, to another city to, where the school of the prophets was to find Elisha, and he came back, raised him from the dead, and that uh, was a wonderful, wonderful miracle. But then years later, several years later, 
still thinking about this woman. God has spoken to him about a famine that was going to come on the land, and he wanted to forewarn her, and he wanted her to be blessed, not to be caught up in this famine. So this happens a few years later. So that brings us into chapter 8. Then Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise and go, you and your household, and stay wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and furthermore, it will come upon the land for seven years. And I've already mentioned to you a couple of times, and I'll do it again, that uh, often famine in the land, especially when the Lord called for a famine in the land, it was a form of chastisement for the nation. Uh, Israel had become idolatrous, really idolatrous. King after king after king was introducing more gods into the nation. And, and God warned them and told them again and again through Samuel the prophet, through Elijah, through Elisha, uh, to repent of this and not to do this. But they kept on doing it and they kept adding to it to the point where the Lord was saying, I've got to chastise you. I've got to rebuke you. I've got to bring you to your senses. And the way he did this was to call for a famine in the land. And so Elisha's telling this woman what's going to happen, and it's going to be for seven years. So he says, get out of this land, go anywhere else, but don't stay in Israel for seven years so you're not caught up in the famine. And then the woman, verse 2, so the woman arose and did according to the saying of the man of God, and she went with her household and dwelt in the land of the Philistines seven years. Now the Philistines at this particular point were not a problem uh, to Israel or anybody else. They had been subdued. Uh, and it was a good land as far as agriculture was concerned. It was a coastal plain, and so it was a good place to actually go and live. Now, she was a woman uh, that was notable. She had a few bob, as we would say. She wasn't short of cash. But nevertheless, for her to get up with her family, now it seems at this point her husband probably has died. He is certainly in chapter 4, he was an old man, and it looks as if because he's not mentioned here at all, it seems like she's a widow by this time, and she's got this son, and she's got a household, she's got servants, and she's got to take care of them. And so for her to uproot herself, to leave her home that she's always lived in, since she was a little girl probably, to leave all of that and leave her land, and leave her people, and leave her culture, and leave everything she knew to go to a foreign land is not an easy thing, was not an easy thing for her to do. Some of you in here have done that. You've come from afar. You've come to live in this country, and you had to get used to different weather. Boy, you didn't have to get used to different weather, and different food, and different language oftentimes, different dialect, different accents, a different culture completely. And it's not easy to do that. And I admire anybody who's got the guts to do that. And this woman had to do this. And and so what I want to say is this, that oftentimes, particularly if you're a believer, sometimes God calls us to do things that are inconvenient, that are not easy to do in the natural. It would be easier just to stay there for her and take her chances, you know, and say, well, you know, there's going to be a famine, but you know, I'm pretty well off and I, I think I could write it out. But the fact that the man of God came and told her to leave, she took that as the word of God. That was God as far as she was going to, that was God speaking to her. And so she was going to obey. Even though it was going to be difficult, it wasn't going to be easy, there's going to be a big transition to make for her, for her family, for everybody, for everything she's ever known. And so when God often calls us to do something, it's not going to be easy 
easy, at least to start with. It'll be challenging and testing. But if God has spoken, if He's the one who has spoken to our hearts and we're going to obey, then we're going to obey anyway. No matter what the consequences, we're going to obey and do what God says. And that's exactly what she did. And it came to pass at the end of seven years that the woman returned from the land of the Philistines and she went to make an appeal to the king for her house and for her land. Now, whenever she was away, someone, whether it was a squatter, uh, whether it was a, a neighbor, or whether it was somebody out of the government, but somebody took her land. And they had no right to do that, but they did it. And so when she came back to claim her land and claim her house, lo and behold, there was people living there. And it doesn't say, but I can imagine, obviously, she would go and speak to them and appeal to them and say, look, I'm the rightful owner. I've got the deeds of the property. But they weren't listening. They weren't having it. She hadn't been around for seven years. And as far as they were concerned, it's mine. So you're not getting it. And so the only thing she could do, her last resort was to appeal to the king. Now, at this point, and here's a little lesson for us. Oftentimes, whenever we do something for the kingdom of God that is inconvenient, that's tough, that's challenging, that's going to cost us something to do, and after we do it, after a while, things go pear-shaped. And the devil comes along and whispers in your ear, see what happens when you obey God. If you hadn't obeyed God, you wouldn't be in this mess. You'd still have been in your house. Nobody could have taken it off you. See what happens if you do the right thing. You're going to lose. Somehow or other, you're going to come up short at the end of it. That's the lies of the enemy. That's what he tries to tell us. The first time we come upon a hard place when we're doing the will of God, you can be sure the enemy of your soul is going to come and he's going to whisper in your ear, it wasn't worth it. You shouldn't have done it. You made a fool of yourself. You're an idiot. Look at you. You're short now. You've lost something. But God, who sent her out in the first place, knew how to take care of her. And in his providence, he was going to make sure that she wouldn't lose. In fact, she was going to prosper and be blessed. When I say providence, the word providence comes from two Latin words, pro and video. See before. See beforehand, we could say. And God who sees the end from the beginning always sees in advance of us. It'd be lovely, maybe you think, if you could look out into your future and see everything, but we can't. And it's maybe a good job we can't, because then we couldn't trust. We have to trust God. He sees our future. He's already out there. He knows the way that we're going to go. And he's going to make sure that no matter what we sacrifice for the kingdom of God, we shall be blessed. And it will come back to us. And so look what happens. Let me remind you again. So she went to make an appeal to the king for her house and for her land. Verse 4. Then the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, please, all the great things Elisha has done. Now, what would be the chances at that particular time 
when the woman went to make her appeal to the king, that lo and behold, it just so happened that Gehazi, Elisha's servant, was called before the king to tell him all the great things that Elisha had done. That is not coincidence, that's providence. There's lots of things in a believer's life that we think, well, that's just coincidence. No, it's not. It's providence. It's God working behind the scenes of our lives. Look what happens. That happened as he was telling the king how he had restored the dead to life, that there was the woman whose son he had restored to life appearing to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman. This is her son whom Elisha has restored to life. And the king asked the woman, and she told him. Again, here he is. I don't know how long it took, but he's standing telling the king all the wonderful miracles that he had seen Elisha perform. And I can imagine him standing and the king listening, and he said, listen, O king, let me tell you, I've kept this to the very last. This is the greatest miracle. I wish you had been there to see it with your own eyes. And he told the story of how uh, Elisha raised that little five-year-old boy up from the dead. And I can imagine the king was all ears listening. And I can imagine the king, I said, King, it was the greatest thing you could ever see. It was so exciting. And the woman's face, you want to see the woman's face? Whenever her little son was raised from the dead, she was so full of joy. She was so grateful. And then there's a big commotion at the back of the, uh, the, back of the court, and they all look around. And they can hardly believe it. And he says, there's the woman, and there's the boy. There's the one that was raised from the dead. There they are. I'm sure the king could hardly believe it either. And he says, are you the woman? Did this really happen? Yes, O king, I'm the woman. This did really happen. Is that coincidence? Or is that providence? That's providence, isn't it? What would be the chances after seven years of that day, of that hour, of that very moment when she cried out, what would have been the chances that that was the very story that Gehazi was telling the king? No, not coincidence, providence. God working on both ends of the line. God making sure that this wee woman was going to be blessed. So the king appointed a certain officer for her, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the proceeds from the field from the day that she left the land until now. Not only did she get her house back, get her land back, but she got a wee bonus on top of it. <laughs> now, I don't know how much it was because there was a famine in the land, but whatever it was, it was icing on the cake. And she got everything plus some more back. And that's what God does. If we trust him, and if we make our sacrifices for the kingdom of God, he will make sure that we're amply repaid. Amen? Amen. Then let's move on to this next incident here. Then Elisha went to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, was sick and was told him, saying, The man of God has come here. Now, this is an incredibly brave thing for Elisha to do. This took a lot of courage. Ben-Hadad was his nemesis. This was his arch enemy. This is the man who actually wanted to destroy his whole nation. 
And not only that, this is the man, you remember, who sent a whole army to surround his house in Dothan who wanted to take him and kill him. There's history between these two. This is the man, this king, who saw his army routed when they had surrounded Samaria and besieged the city, trying to starve the inhabitants to death. And through the prophecy of Elisha, God told them to hold fast because he was going to do something, and he did something. He made them to hear as if when those four leprous men sat at the gate of Samaria, when they got up and they walked towards the camp of the Syrians, he made them to hear as if it was a great army coming, and they fled and they left everything. What an embarrassment. How ashamed they must have been when they got back to Syria. So there's history between these two. And this is his citadel. This is his heartland. This is his very capital. This is where his palace is. And this is the very place now that Elisha has gone to. He went to Damascus. But he didn't go there as a tourist. He didn't go on a fact-finding mission. He went under the leading and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God had a job for him to do. And no matter how dangerous it was, no matter whether he was going to hazard his life for it, he was going to make sure he was there. And so he bravely went. And notice that the word went round and got back to the king that the man of God is here. That tells us that Elisha and his ministry was legendary at this time. Not only did all Israel know about him, but even Syria knew about him. And certainly the king of Syria certainly knew about him. And so he was legendary. So he was instantly recognizable. I mean, he would have been like a celebrity in those days. Everybody knew him because his fame was spread abroad. And so it got back to the king. And the king said to verse 8, and the king said to Hazael, Hazael, take a present in your hand and go and meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? Ah. Even this pagan king, when he was desperate, when he didn't know if he was going to live or die, and he heard about the man of God being in town, knowing that this is the man that cleansed Naaman, his top general, years ago from his leprosy, he remembered that. And I wonder, was he thinking, boy, if I could have an audience with him, who knows, maybe the Lord would rid me of this disease and I wouldn't die. And so he kind of humbled himself when he was desperate. And many a rank sinner, maybe the vilest sinner, when they're in a crisis, when they're in desperation, sometimes... They go to the Lord in desperation, looking to, for something to happen. And this is what was happening with this man. And so Hazael went to meet with him and took a present with him of every good thing of Damascus, 40 camel loads. And he came and stood before him and said, Your son, he's being deferential here, Your son, Ben Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you saying, Shall I recover from this disease? Forty camel loads, that's some present, isn't it? Of the best that he could find. 
There's no record that Elisha took this present. I think we can safely assume that he didn't take it. Certainly whenever Naaman came with his present, he didn't take it. He had nothing to do with it. I think we could assume that was the same here, although it doesn't say it. But handing these presents over, I wonder was that a way of trying to sweetening the pot? I wonder was that a way of, of Ben-Hadad saying, look, you know, looking for a favorable response. If we butter up the prophet, we'll get a favorable response. But he obviously didn't know him very well, really, because this man couldn't be buttered up, and he couldn't be bought, and he couldn't be sold. He was God's man, and he would say whatever needed to be said, come what may. And so, shall I recover from this disease? And Elisha said to him, go say to him, you shall certainly recover. However, the Lord has shown me that he will really die. Ah, that's a bit strange, isn't it? A bit cryptic. Either that, at best, is a contradiction, or at worst, is a downright lie. But it's neither. It was the truth, actually. And what Elisha's saying here, and we'll see this proved in a moment, what Elisha's saying, listen, tell the king he'll recover, but in actual fact, he's going to die. The disease won't kill him, but something else will kill him. If he lived long enough, this disease won't kill him. It may be troublesome, it may be traumatic, but it's not terminal. But he is going to die. You can bank on that, but not from the disease. That's what he's saying here. Then he said, go say to him, you shall certainly recover, he shall certainly recover, however the Lord has shown me he will really die. And then he set his countenance in a stare until he was ashamed. And the man of God wept. So after he said that, suddenly he looked at Hazael and he stared at him. It's very disconcerting if somebody starts staring at you, isn't it? For instance, say I'm preaching this morning and I come off the platform and I look at David Nichol there and I'm preaching away to you. And suddenly I stop and I start staring at him. And if I didn't tell you I was going to do this, you'd all be thinking, what in the world is going on? And David would be getting more uncomfortable. And he'd think, what is the pastor thinking? What is this? Something's going to happen here. He's going to rebuke me or something here. I've done something wrong. And then to make it even worse, what if I started to weep? Like Clifford. Now, you'd, you'd, expect, you'd expect that of him, but you wouldn't expect that of me. Sure you wouldn't. That's right, yeah. You'd say, well, that's Clifford. Clifford, he's emotional, but David, he, he's, he just stands there. <laughs> but what if I started weeping and still staring at him? Boy, that would really be uncomfortable, wouldn't it? And he got really uncomfortable. His I.L. And he's thinking, what is going on? And then he couldn't resist. He said to the man of God, he says, why are you weeping? He says he was ashamed. The 
prophet's eyes is boring right into his very soul, revealing the very secrets of his heart. And Hazael was beginning to realize, why are you weeping? What are you saying? What are you thinking? And it's terrible. Listen to what he says. Why are you weeping? He answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire. Their young men you will kill with the sword. And you will dash their children and rip open their woman with child. Ah. No wonder he's weeping. No wonder his heart is breaking when he sees what this man is going to do in the future. It opens the very floodgates of his heart. We know that Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. Jeremiah wept often when he saw what was going to happen to his nation. And here's this prophet. He's weeping when he sees what's going to happen to his nation. Jesus wept. Jesus wept when he saw what was going to happen to his nation. When Jesus rode in on that donkey on that great day and they were crying, Hosanna. And the Pharisees then rebuked him. And then Jesus went on. And Jesus talked about what was going to happen to the city. And he wept. He wept. He says, there'll not be one stone left upon another. And A.D. 70, that prophecy came to pass when Titus came in and destroyed Jerusalem. And Jesus foresaw that. And he wept over the city. And here's this prophet. And he's weeping. And he's looking right into the heart of Hazael. And he sees the wickedness, the brutality, the awfulness. But verse 13 is problematic. There's two ways to look at it. I'll give you both of them. So Hazael said... But what is your servant, a dog, that he should do this gross thing? Hmm. I'm reading from the New King James. And generally, it gets it pretty good. But there's a discrepancy here I'll point out in a moment. So reading that as it is, as I just read it to you, so Hazael said, what is your servant, a dog, that he should do this gross thing? That would lead us to believe that he could not believe that he could possibly ever do anything like that. Do you think I'm a dog? Do you think I'm a brute beast that I would do such a gross thing as that? Jeremiah says, the heart is exceedingly deceitful, desperately wicked above all things who can know it? And the trouble is that most men does not recognize the depths that sin could take them. Somebody says sin will always take you farther than you intended to go. And it can and it does. And there's nobody that couldn't stoop to the depths of sin given the right opportunity and the right occasion. Our hearts are desperately wicked, the Bible says. Who can know it except God, really? 
oftentimes we think we know our own heart until we're put into a position. And then we find out what our heart really thinks. Am I a dog that I should do this gross thing? Well, we know that in, in situations in war, for instance, that men go to war to fight a just battle. They fail. But when they get there, in the horror of war, even decent men can become capable of the most heinous crimes because they're put in a position and they're given opportunity and the heart is wicked. Anybody, uh, certainly I have, anybody that's ever went to Poland to visit the death camps in Auschwitz and Birkenau and you walk through that, it's shocking. It's shocking the depths that men would go to. These were some woman's sons that went to war and became capable of the most heinous crimes known to humanity. And if you walk through those camps, it hits you up the face. You begin to see maybe for the first time and you see those rooms where they were tortured and the places where they were hung and they were shot and the very room where they were gassed and the, and the crematorium where they were burned uh, and, and the rooms where they were in prison and you see those thousands of shoes of all ages that they had stripped them of and even their prosthesis all in land heaps and you see a roll of cloth that was made by human hair. Let me tell you, it's shocking beyond belief almost. But that was 70 years ago. That's just a generation ago. We look what's happening in the Middle East today in Syria and in Iraq, and we see these IS jihadists, and we see the awful cruelty and the wickedness. You can hardly believe what you're seeing and hearing. Yes, fallen man is capable of the most awful things in the sight of God. So is that what he's really saying? Well, I don't really think it is. You see, in the New King James it says, but what is your servant, a dog, that he should do this gross thing? But in the original it's not this gross thing, it's this great thing. Did that mean he was thinking this is great to rip up woman with a child? No, no. He's talking about the scope, the scale of this. How could I just a courtier of the king. I'm not a great general. I, I'm a glorified messenger boy. How could I do this great thing? How could I take on Israel and destroy it and do this great war thing? How could I do that? You say, but he called himself a dog. Well, when he called himself a dog, he wasn't talking about the, the brute beast. He wasn't talking about the beastliness of the nature. He's talking about the lowliness of a dog. You see, in those days, and even parts of the world today, dogs were not counted just as, as, as household pets. They were feral. They ran on packs. They were lowly. Even shepherds didn't have sheep dogs. Whenever King David in 2 Samuel 9, whenever he had settled in his kingdom, he called his servant Zeba one day and he says, is there anybody left of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness to for Jonathan's sake? Zeba says, yes, actually there is. Jonathan is yet a son, Mephibosheth. 
And he lives in Lodibar, but he's lame in both his feet. You know the story, don't you? David said, send for him. And so Ziba sent for him, and he brought him back to see the king. Let me just read this very quickly, this little part. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth, he answered, here is your servant. So David said, do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather. And you shall eat bread at my table continually. And he bowed himself and said, listen to this, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I am? It is very obvious he's talking about the lowliness of his position. I'm, I'm just a dead dog. I'm nothing. Look, I'm laying on both my feet. I'm nothing. Why should you do this to me? But that's the grace of God, isn't it? It's a wonderful gospel story there. The New Living Translation, verse 13 of Second Kings 8, puts it this way. How could a nobody like me ever accomplish such a great feat? That's what he's really saying. I tell you why, because murder was already in his heart. And that's why he was ashamed whenever the prophet stared into his very soul. He saw the murder in his heart, and he knew he was capable. Here was a highly ambitious man. Here was a man who somehow or other wheedled his way into the court of the king and became a confidant and became one whom the king could trust sick and all as he was here's a man who was ambitious to go further here's a man in his heart would love to be king and here's a man who sees that coming closer because the king is now sick thinking he's going to die and so when he went to Elisha, and Elisha says, no, he's not going to die of this illness. His heart must have dropped. But then he says, but he will surely die. But he's thinking, well, how long is that going to take? If he's not going to die of this illness, is he going to die of some other illness? When? This year, next year, 10 years, 20 years, how long is this going to take? And all of that time, he was biding his time, and he was very clever, and he was very nice, and he said all the right things, and he did all the right things. He wouldn't make anybody suspect this man of anything. He was a courtier of the king. He was a trusted man of the king. But all the time he'd been biding his time, waiting and waiting, and it seemed like the time was coming closer now that he's ill. But then suddenly, it looks as if, well, he's not going to die of that. When is he going to die? So let's see this man, and let's see what really was in his heart. And Elisha answered and said, The Lord has shown me that you will become king over Syria. Ah. Ah. Now. Now. He's going to have the opportunity. Now he's going to have the power to do everything that Elisha saw in his heart he would do. He didn't know how that could happen unless he was king and he didn't know when he'd ever be king but now he sees yes 
I am going to be king and I can do this great thing. <laughs> Look what happens. The Lord has shown me that you will become king over, Israel, over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master who said to him, what did Elisha say to you? And he answered, he told me that you would surely recover. Ha. Half truth. But it was a big lie, wasn't it? He told me that you will surely recover. And he knew by saying that, that the king would relax, that he wouldn't suspect anything, that he wouldn't be confused, that he'd be happy, that he'd be trusting. That was the news he really wanted to hear. And his eye all knew that. And so he played him. And he deceived him. Jesus had his Judas... Ben Hadad had his Hazael. And we know that David had his Ahithophel. Ahithophel was his confidant. He was a close friend. In verse 12 of Psalm 55, he says, For it was not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor as one who hates me who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man, my equal, my companion, my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together. We walked to the house of God in the throng. And then 21 it says, The words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. The words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. And that is an exact picture of Hazael at this moment. And so he goes into the king and he says, he told me you will surely recover. But it happened on the next day, the very next day. He went to bed that night and he couldn't sleep. He figured out a way to murder this man. I can't wait around. The prophet of God says, I'm going to be <coughs> king. And I want to be king right now. Why wait? If I'm going to be king, I might as well be king now. Look what he does. But it happened the next day that he took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it over the face, his face, so that he died. And Hazael reigned in his place. It was a common thing in those days, especially if, if people were fevered and body and their temperature was sky high that they would get wet cold cloths and place it over their body just to try to reduce the temperature that's nothing wrong with that but he figured this is a perfect way to murder him if I get a thick wet cloth and I go in and he's just sleeping doesn't even know I'm there I'll just put this right over his face and I'll hold it and hold it and he'll fight and he'll kick but nobody will hear him and then eventually, his last breath will leave his body, and he'll die. And there'll be no stab wounds, and there'll be no strangulation marks, and there'll be nothing of any evidence other than he died drenched in his own sweat with a fever. The perfect murder, it seemed. And that's exactly what he did. And so his heart was full of murder, the man of God was right. 
God exposed him for what he was. But you know what? None of this could have happened without God's permission. Actually, believe it or not, it was all part of God's plan to chastise his people. Say, you sure, David? Yeah, positive. Let me prove that to you before we close. 1 Kings chapter 19. <clears throat> First Kings chapter 19. You remember Elijah, his predecessor? You remember how he had that great confrontation with the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel? And how he killed the prophets of Baal with a sword? And then Ahab's wife Jezebel threatened him with death, and he got frightened, and he ran. And he ran all the way down to Beersheba, as far south as he could go, to get away from this woman who was going to kill him. And while he was there, he was so depressed, he was so despondent, God had to send an angel to come to him, to encourage him. An angel came and, and gave him some encouragement, gave him some refreshments, and told him, I have to move on from here. And he went to Horeb, and he went to the mountain, and there was great wind. But God was not in the wind. There's a great earthquake, but God was not in the earthquake. There's a great fire, but God was not in the fire. And then came the still, small voice of God. What are you doing here, Elijah? And then God gave him some commands, some orders. Verse 15, then the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazael, as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshai, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. Whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 Israel. All those knees have not bowed to Baal and to every mouth that has not kissed him. Now you have to understand, whenever Solomon's reign came over, the kingdom was divided. And Jeroboam, and then Omri, and then Ahab, and then Jehoram, all of these kings that followed were almost worse than the one before. And they entered just false gods, pagan gods, into God's country among God's people. And they began to worship them. And again, God rebuked them again and again and again to try to get them to stop this, but they would not stop it. This went on for years and years and years. And Ahab entered just Baal into the country, the, the, the most awful God, terrible, wicked, perverted. And that continued to God had enough. And God told Elijah, you're going to anoint certain people and they're going to stop this. They're going to chasten my people. But whenever you read the story of Elijah, you'll find Elijah only got to anoint Elisha. He never did get personally to anoint Hazael or Jehu. 
that was left to Elisha. And the reason why it was, because if you read over there another chapter, you'd find <laughs> that Elijah went to Ahab and told him, this is what's going to happen to you and to your wife. And when you read it, it's awful. It was so awful, in fact, that Ahab got so frightened that he repented. <laughs> and God told Elijah, because he has repented, this will not come on his day, it will come on his son's day. And his son was Jehoram. And that was Elisha's time. So God, in his justice, was making sure that all of these things would happen so that his nation would turn their back on idolatry. Aren't you glad for the grace of God? <laughs> Aren't you glad you're living today in the grace of God? But you know, God still deals with nations. The Bible talks about sheep nations and goat nations. Empires rise and empires fall. Kings are enthroned, kings are dethroned. God still deals with nations. And he's still dealing with nations today. Paul says the powers are be are ordained of God. Hard for us to understand that sometimes, but that is what Paul said. That's why we're to pray for the powers that be. And so here is Elisha. It doesn't actually give us the moment when he anointed his Isle. But he's certainly telling him, you're going to be king. And later on, he goes to Jehu, and you're going to be king over Israel. And between them, at the end of Baal worship in the land. God's word is always faithful. No matter how long it takes, no matter what it takes, it will come to pass. So that must encourage us. It will never fail. I tell you how it encourages me because there are many, many, many prophecies regarding the very days that we are living in now that have been given by Daniel and by Isaiah and, and Zephaniah and Zechariah and so forth and Gwon and Malachi. All of these prophecies that are dealing with end time events, we can trust that God will do it. We can see some of them actually before our very eyes being fulfilled in our day. I told you before, whenever we went through the book of Revelation, things I preached ago 20, 30 years ago, this is going to happen. It hadn't happened yet, but now it has happened. We can see it as on the news. We can see the very name. What are we talking about today? We're talking about Syria. We're talking about Iraq. We're talking about Iran, which was Persia. We're talking about all those old, but we're talking about Damascus. We're talking about all those old biblical names in the Old Testament. And now we see things happening today right before our very eyes that God prophesied would happen. This is why we can trust this book. Amen? Let's pray. Bless the Lord. That little woman we read about, Shunammite, she 
put her trust in the word of God. And it didn't fail her, sure it didn't. It took several years, but the word of God didn't fail. And she was greatly and mightily blessed. Lord, we thank you today that we can trust you and we can trust what you say in your word. Lord, as we already heard through Clifford this morning that men are trying to change this word, trying to water it down, make it say what you didn't say. But Lord, we believe that it, believe that it's infallible, it's inerrant, it is true, it'll always be true. It will never fail. Lord, this is an anvil that has worn out many hammers and will continue to do so. So we put our trust in this word, this rock of the word of God. And we thank you for it. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can also watch the Sermon of the Month video at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal or download the sermon video through our iTunes video podcast. For more information, visit us at www.mpc.org.uk. Thank you.